Hi, and welcome to Data Futurology. This podcast is for people that are interested in the data space to get learnings from current industry leaders. We hear their stories, their mistakes, their lessons learned, and they have so much knowledge to share with us. My name is Felipe Flores. I am your host. Thank you so much for tuning in. And today we're speaking with Dr. Eric Daimler. He is an based out of the US and he's an authority in AI and robotics with over 20 years of experience as an entrepreneur, an investor, academic researcher, and policymaker. He's a serial entrepreneur, having co-founded six technology companies, doing extremely, extremely interesting work. He has also worked in the Obama administration as a White House Presidential Innovation Fellow. And before that, in the early 2000s, he was working at Carnegie Mellon University as assistant dean and assistant professor. He started his career in finance and then went on to be a venture capitalist and then the, the rest of the very impressive things that I just mentioned. Obviously, a very, very impressive person. He tells us about his journey, his learnings, all the interesting work that he's doing at the moment. And he also is an author and has a forthcoming book called Every Business is an AI Business. This book is a guidebook for entrepreneurs, engineers, and policymakers and citizens on how to understand and benefit from the revolution in AI and robotics. Super, super interesting. We dive into a lot of the topics that are coming up in the book, and I think that you guys will get a lot of value from it. I really enjoyed the conversation. Here's the episode with Eric. Hi, this is Felipe. Today I'm speaking with Eric. Eric, thank you so much for being on the show. How are you doing today? Good to be here, Felipe. Doing well. Excellent. At the beginning of the interviews, I always like to ask, ask guests, how did you get started in this field? What was it that drew you in? A nerd uh, about computers for as long <laughs> as I had memories. I do have a vivid memory of getting a computer when I was nine. I think I would have had an interest before that, but uh, you know, my father was a, an engineer and he gave me, or we had a conversation about getting a, a computer that I could put together. So I remember getting a series of parts around which I actually assembled my own computer. And that really was a revelation for me. Uh, really, quite quickly, I liked this machine. And, and I just, even at nine, it might sound precocious, but I really saw the freedom that a computer would allow. You know, that continued into uh, high school. I think I was really the only person not to take my high school computer classes. And it's, it's because I, I was in this new housing development. I remember I sent around a petition to get a bus service out to our uh, housing development in order for me to then take that bus service, and I was successful in getting public bus service out to our, our new, new development. I got the bus, then I took it to the University of Washington in Seattle. And so for the last two years of my high school, that's where I was taking many, if, if not all, of my classes and, and concluded the computer class. So the, the interest continued. I was fortunate enough to go to some really nice universities where I continued this interest. And I expressed this in robotics at Carnegie Mellon when we were learning how to teach the distinction of balance uh, to robots, which was really a terrific milestone. It's some really brilliant people. I'm just really fortunate 
to have been able to continue to be involved in some businesses, some investment groups, working with bringing sophisticated technologies into the hands of people in whatever fashion that could be. And have a unique experience, I think a rare, if not unique experience, being able to get exposure to policy, academia, and, and enterprise, uh, both from an investor and, and perspective and from the perspective of an entrepreneur at a senior level uh, at Altria. It's, it's been a really terrific journey. I'm grateful that I'm still around to be able to experience the boom in what I thought was going to be available for quite some time. The, the, the rise of, of AI or fulfilling the promise of AI is probably a better way to put it that we're currently experiencing. So that's that's an overview of the story. It's outstanding. And could you unpack that a little bit more for us, if that's okay? I find it so fascinating that you've done time in policy, time in academia, time as an entrepreneur, uh, multiple times over, and also as a as an investor. How did you move from one of those areas to the other? What was the transitions like for you personally and the, I guess, the evolution that you needed of your own set of perspectives or skills in order to take on the challenges of the new areas? Principle has been working with great people, but also just working to fulfill this vision of technology enabling more, let's say, humanness. You know, the particular angle that I have is more engineering focused. It's just where I feel my skills uh, are applied most appropriately. So there's a lot of people that get involved in the world of technology. Mine has tended to be in a particular range of leading technologies. You know, so I haven't done a semiconductor so much. As an investor, I did one medical deal. But I've always been excited about artificial intelligence and robotics. And I've been really fortunate that this has been able to be expressed more recently. So I have in my background, the, uh, the beginnings of a statistical arbitrage hedge fund. And you'd say, well, what was AI-ish about that? We used mm-hmm. quite a bit. Uh, machine learning inside of the development of those algorithms. And it was all math, which was another commonality. It was just very sophisticated math. But the overlay to that has been working with great people. You know, certainly I had some experiences be more enjoyable than other experiences, but I have generally got into these experiences wanting to work with really terrific people and, and grow. You know, earlier in my career, when I was in, in Europe uh, working with a big bank and then coming back to New York working for another bank, I was a quant. I just thought I would want to work with a really terrifically smart, motivated people. I remember quite vividly when I was in New York and we our, our offices were in Rockefeller Center and we we're moving over to Times Square and we we're at this fancy new office in Times Square, Morgan Stanley. It's really a different firm now, but in those times, I I was on this big trading floor where our little quant team was, and I saw for the first time the Netscape browser. So I'm out of academia, you know, I'm out of Europe, out of London, and I see the Netscape browser for the first time. It was quite a while ago. And I had a visceral reaction. Other people looked at it the way, you know, some people might look at the new Samsung foldable phones, like, oh, that's really cool, and it's really interesting. And I had a visceral reaction. I can feel to this day, I get goosebumps thinking about it, where I said, oh my wow. God, oh my God, 
you know, obviously I'd been working with the web before and, and working with the internet before that, when it was the ARPANET back in the early 80s, really back in the Reagan administration, we had access to the internet. But it happened before that, but, but it was in the experience of the Netscape browser that I just knew, oh my God, the world is going to change. I need to get out of here. I, I, know I need to experience huh. this transformation. So I immediately started reaching out to opportunities I knew that would, would exist on the West Coast. I just knew that's where we get, that's where it's going to be. That's where it's going to be. So I was talking to friends. I was sometimes just cold calling. And very quickly, it was in a, in a terrific position to have a lot of different opportunities available. Two of them came to the top. One of those was working uh, for an investment firm on Sand Hill Road. So I, I got a really fancy fancy office at the Sand Hill Road address. And it was comfortable. And it would get me out in the mix of investing in Silicon Valley. The other was for a startup, taking advantage of the internet. I saw that seemed really exciting to me, but it was in Seattle. And my wife was less excited about moving to Seattle than moving to warm California. So I ended up working as a venture capitalist instead of being employee 72 at Amazon. Wow. How do you feel about that decision now? It's funny. I haven't told that story in a long time. And I think many, many, many people have similar stories. One of my very good friends had a similar story about joining uh, Apple. There's, there's a range of those stories, stories from people quitting. Facebook early or Twitter early because they thought it was a better startup available. So I think the only person that reminds me of that change or that decision was my mother. But uh, we don't talk about that anymore. It's all good. It's all good. It's all turned out well. Excellent. No, I know uh, it has. It's really, really impressive. And from your time as a venture capitalist, then you went on to, well, first academia and then be a serial entrepreneur. Is that right? And how have those transitions? It's funny that you're based in Australia because it's just coincidental that probably my biggest failure as an investor, and this may be a funny thing to bring up if we're talking about my investment track record, is was a firm with an Australian name founded by an Australian. It was Quokka Sports. I like sports that are, were a little less common. I did track and field. I did cycling. I was trained to be on the Olympic cycling team representing the United States back in the 80s. I think I did pretty well. I got beat by the guy that ultimately won the gold medal, so that's okay. So I like cycling. I like the Olympics. I, I like the track and field. And so that uh, Quokka Sports was this idea of aggregating the worldwide demand of those niche sports into an audience mm. on the web that would allow for bigger marketing dollars to be put. Right? It's a fantastic idea. It seemed like an appropriate time to do it. You're always looking for when the right timing is to exploit an idea. The problem was it just wasn't, it was too early. It wasn't the right time. And this is one of perhaps my biggest takeaways from being an investor is that the timing matters a lot. And it might not be overstating it, just that timing is everything. We hear that phrase, but I mean, wow. I have a visceral reaction again to that experience, especially with Bakke, because it's a brilliant idea, great executives, they're actually a decent execution, but the bandwidth wasn't there. So the experience was really quite poor. You just didn't get anything close to what you have today, but it wasn't even as we tried to deploy it, we came to reality about what the cameras would look like that all over the bandwidth we had available. You just didn't have the experience of being in these sports at all. And we just knew it was going to be a complete waste of money. And therefore, it was my biggest failure. But it came to sink in the commonly used phrase in the investment community is we don't confuse a clear vision for a short time horizon. It's hard to do. It's hard to do. We have that right now 
in autonomous vehicles, it's yeah. really easy, even for the layperson on the street, where to think about what autonomous vehicles look like. You know, I, I can see out of my office right now in San Francisco, autonomous vehicles driving down Columbus Street every so often. We get occasionally these ones by Zoot, so those are really outfitted with, with just way too many sensors outside. And yesterday... We found some people honking at the Zook's car, and you could see it struggling. It was jumping around. It was kind of jittery as it bumped around. People were honking until they telling it to get out of the way. This may not be working so well for, for many of these companies today. Zook's yesterday in front of my office. But in general, even the layperson on the street can see, oh, well, we're going to have autonomous vehicles. The problem is most people really get the timing very wrong. We're talking in what April 2019, where just a couple of days ago, we had Elon Musk talking about Tesla having t- automated taxis coming very soon. And with a charitable response to that is that was hyperbole. That's an exaggeration. Elon was a, was a founder of this company that was in our portfolios when I was an investor. He was a founder of this mapping company called Zip2. He was a funny guy back then that continues with his pronouncements like this one of saying we're going to have automated taxes. I, I will go on record saying bet against it. What, what he meant is we really will have autonomous taxis, fully autonomous mm-hmm. in the roads of a city such as San Francisco. Then I will I'll be on the record of saying I don't think that is going to happen in the time frame that he's declared in the last week. That's right, because he gave it a, a year, right? Or he said um, by sometime next, yeah. uh, by sometime 2020, yeah, yeah. very aggressive. And so what are your current views on picking timing of either or new businesses and bringing new technologies to the market? Have you got any further thoughts on picking that timing? Concern now is that there is a great deal of money looking to chase the next big thing. This has been going on for a while in venture. But one of my good friends was Scott Sandell. He's, he heads up now EDA New Enterprise Associates. And I remember him many, many years ago thinking that there was going to be a blowout in venture capital because there was too much money in the business. Well, there's more money in that business today than there was then. And many of these businesses are run by, these investment groups are run by non-technologists which can be fine. They also can be fine if you're part of a diversified group, a mixed group. You want to have a diverse group of thinking around the table. But if very few or none have any sort of technical training, it's really hard to get a feel for what technology is coming when. So the result is that many of these investors will hear pitches and they'll get left out. So you can think of this dynamic if you're looking for a house. If you were had to go to move to Melbourne from Sydney or vice versa, you're moving into this new neighborhood in Melbourne and you need to look for a house and you make a bid on a house. And let's say you miss the bid and somebody else takes a house. It doesn't mean you say, oh, shucks, I guess I'll, I'll stay in Sydney. So I'll stay where I was. No, <laughs> it just means you have to go look for another house. So the house gets bid up, and now you're, you're a little more informed about the market. You say, oh, you know, I was close end of downtown or far away, or it was two stories, one story, what have you, and you get a little more informed. Well, this happens in the venture world in much the same way. So you see a pitch, or you receive a pitch on, you get that pitch, and then let's say some name brand firm takes it away from you, or some non-name brand gives a higher valuation to the entrepreneur, and the entrepreneur wants to have a higher valuation. Well, that doesn't mean that you're going to say, oh, shucks, I don't want to play in that business or that one uh, went away. No, it means Mm. that you're going to look for another 
comparable business. You're going to be actually more sensitive to that because you spent some time doing some due diligence in that market. You understand maybe some of the technologies, maybe some of the customers in that space. So that dynamic plays out. So that pretty soon you have 12 companies competing in this space that really should have only had just been able to justify one or two. So you get uh, valuations going up and therefore returns going down. That's a big concern I have in technology investing in general. It's just this me too crowded space where you have to create this dynamic of, of the current term of art is blitz scaling in order to dominate uh, a particular market space that, that you're going at. Many of these investment firms, I think, are going to be disappointed with the returns of their vintage 2017, 2018, 2019 funds because of that dynamic. So I'm really trying to look where investors are not playing. You have some invest, investment firms that are more intelligent than others by, say, uh, foundation ventures where they'll just invent a company wholesale. They want to create their own opportunities. I think that's smart. You have other firms like NEA where they just say, I'm going to bet on the team, successful teams that it will end up just being successful and we'll let that run. That can be a smart strategy. And they don't spend a lot of time trying to rethink what's going on. And then you have other firms where Andreessen Horowitz or Sequoia where just the best firms will, the best deals will always come to them first, just because of the, the name recognition, not the value. That can be obviously a winning strategy as well. But I am just really starting to look at where others are not. I think that what is underappreciated right now, yeah. what is underinvested, is the earned industry expertise in all the other verticals, all the hundreds of other particular applications that are not addressed by the big technology companies. There are some very smart people doing the logistics business, doing pharma, doing retail that's not covered by Amazon, a lot of other applications that are potentially very, very interesting. That's really where I'm spending my time. That's excellent. Very, very interesting. And I definitely like that different approach. And tell me, you're obviously spending your time in these different industries with a lens of AI, machine learning, and possibly robotics as well. What is it that excites you about artificial intelligence and the way that it can be infused into these different industries? I would invite your listeners and everybody to consider an interpretation of AI that is larger than what currently exists. The literal definition of AI as a learning algorithm, the subset of which is machine learning, the subset of which is, is deep learning, while true, doesn't really serve the 99% of us that are not developers of these algorithms, or perhaps the applied artificial intelligence people. I invite a larger vision of AI as AI as a system. And if you think about that, that we have ways of other people being able to participate in this larger, larger system that can really improve the world in which we live. There are other people that come out and say, well, the AI is a commoditization of prediction. I think that's true. It doesn't give me a place to interact with the world much, but I think that's true. Uh, there are people that say, well, it's just augmentation. It's just like a tool, something to keep beside me and help me enable me to do other things. But I think that's true. It doesn't give me much about what to do about it, but it, I think it's true. We have to embrace this technology in its totality, and we have to embrace it because to get directly at what you're asking, because literally our species depends on it, the survival of our species. You know, we have 
know, famously been able to uh, survive until 2019 for a variety of fortunate reasons, not least of which is, is not having a nuclear war, but more in our everyday experience, it's because we have food, because we have air, but because we can eat. And there was a prediction back in the late 1800s that we would have starved by now because population was growing faster than our food production would, uh, uh, would be able to support. And the reason that that didn't happen is obviously because we increased food productivity. So for our ancestors, our forefathers, most of us worked on farms. Or certainly with farms or between farms and physical machinery, that accounted for just about everybody. But most of us worked on farms. The farm productivity increased such that we're able to support a growing population and almost none of us work on farms. Some are like in the you know, low single digits that work on farms today and it's supporting a much, much larger population. Well, if you look today about the calories that are produced from food, from agriculture relative to the population, we actually don't produce enough food today. And yet our population is continuing to grow. So literally we have to continue to increase our productivity in agriculture in order to not starve. And that increase in productivity comes from technology. It comes from automation. And automation is synonymous with these modern digital technologies such as AI, such as robotics. So that's, that, you can say that excites me, but that's why other people I think should be excited too. And that's why I think we need to be thinking more globally about the urgency with which we need to embrace this technology. That's great. So true. How do you see the embracing of this technology, the adoption? How do you see that happening at the moment? And how do you see that it could be increased in speed and it could be done faster by people in different industries? I think we have both a, a technical or enterprise way of adopting it or having us be comfortable with technology. And and we'll say we may have a just an ordinary person on the street way of uh, adopting this technology. I think the commonality for both is considering AI as a system. What becomes then distinct is in the particular applications around, as we say, these this earned industry expertise, this particular knowledge that has been acquired by an individual inside of a particular domain. You know, you know the dynamics of whatever industry you are in, you know, whether it's uh, shipping or mining or clean technology, or oil exploration, or tourism, you know, there's a lot of nuances to those industries that really are best acquired from people spending time in them. And that knowledge applied with these augmentation technologies, with modern digital technologies and experimentation together can produce magic. And way back at the beginning for many people in my conversations where there's really a disagreement about the terms, you know, about the nomenclature, you know, about, you know, what is AI? It's an interesting exploration to just ask people, and I often do this when I'm speaking, is asking people, you know, what comes to mind when they think of AI? What comes to mind when your colleague brings up AI? What do they say? What comes to mind when you're at a at a family gathering or your, your grandmother brings up AI? Maybe fear but also just right say data. You know, people just don't know what these terms are. 
So the first thing that I've been exploring is coming to an agreement on the, the terminology, the nomenclature, the ontology. I am exploring with a, a think tank with whom I was really fortunate to have been participating in Halcyon Dialogue. We had a group of about 20, 30 people getting together in Washington, D.C. late last year for a couple of days just to talk about this very issue. And the conclusion we came to was the idea of creating a type of certification for companies that starts to address issues of ethics, including privacy, and then links that to a type of certification that an individual could get. So you know, there are certainly some terrific courses available online. Andrew Oates, of course, from Coursera being, being among the, the really good ones in teaching people the basics of AI. And looking to hope to take that sort of expression of Andrews further is in directly linking what people learn about AI to how companies are looking to deploy AI. And so we do that perhaps first with the terms and then first with the identification of systems. So we can start with something as easy as a training set, test set, and, and model creation and so forth, and then link that to how the company thinks about that when they start to describe their earnestness towards uh, data privacy. You know, one of the critical issues if we're thinking about how companies deploy AI mm -hmm. is a recognition that our understanding of the technology to some extent may change. You know, what we had thought about was important in 2015 is certainly different about what we think of it in 2019. So there has to be some temporal component to how we think mm -hmm. about this technology. You know, even the meaning of the word data privacy, I think we could agree, has changed from mm -hmm. 2019 to maybe as recently as 2016. But even over the last year, yeah. maybe it's changed a little bit. We're beginning to see the dangers of some of these technologies. We know we saw them in some elections, but you know, I, I was just in Cambodia some number of weeks ago, and there's this um, common magazine on one of the shelves, the, just some big news weekly that's popular in Cambodia. And on the cover of this news weekly was this headline that you could be put in jail for the wrong type of Facebook posts. <laughs> now, we now wow. know the, the dynamics we had around the tragedy we had around the Rohingya in, in Myanmar, that this is a, like literally a life and death issue. In that sense, you know, a, a genocidal an issue of genocide. I don't think that that danger is appreciated in many other, in many Western countries. It's present in Myanmar, it's certainly present in this in this particular expression in Cambodia. But I don't think that's widely known that you know, this sort of urgency and the magnitude of that urgency for what many of us just experience uh, day to day in you know, the interaction with social media. So these are real issues around the adoption of these technologies. And what I want to have happen is that we all address these issues as a people, as a society, and don't just react. The danger of reacting is not only that we could have more you know, tragedies like we've seen in ways that we can't imagine, but also that we might actually just resist the adoption of this technology, which is, as we say, as we lay out, it, it could also be literally catastrophic for the survival of our species. So I want to have a, a certification that links the principles from a company down to the understanding of individuals. I think the company principles also 
should be nuanced enough that we could understand some companies wanting to have a, a, a silver, gold, or platinum. There might be some circumstances, such as your health records with your insurance company or the hospital, where you want gold-level privacy. There might be other circumstances. What I had for lunch, I'm much less sensitive about. And if, they, if my restaurant wants to share that with another restaurant near door, or the next door in order to give me a better experience of my food choices for the week, I might be, and almost, almost certainly, to be much more relaxed about data privacy in that circumstance versus my hospital records, uh, for example. So some recognition that there's different levels of privacy, not just a, an overall principle. So over time, different levels. And then also by industry. So we might have a national security concern about keeping data privacy for our electrical grid, for example, which may be very different from the concerns for data privacy we may have around the distribution of a movie. Now, Sony, to use an example, might be very concerned about their data privacy for movies, for pirating or for getting hacked by you know, some rogue country's enthusiasts. Mm-hmm. But you know, for the rest of us, either that's our health records or our, our electrical grid is a higher consequence environment than our entertainment. So that's another way in which I think these principles only at the highest level are common, but very quickly might be useful to allow for some degree of nuance. So that's how I think that we can encourage an adoption of AI is remind ourselves of the importance of this technology and create some structures for us embracing the technology by becoming more educated in the technology. We can't be looking at this as just a black box to which we react when the geeks like me coming out of their cubicles. We have to be engaging in a conversation. That is such a useful perspective for people to, to adopt. I think that there's definitely a lot of hurdles for well for companies to adopt and embrace AI and for people to, to start having these meaningful conversations and interactions around what is necessary in this space. I definitely like the idea that you mentioned around having a, a certification and, and helping people understand the implications and the dangers as well. What would you say are, are some of the hurdles that you see in companies adopting AI and essentially being able to transform their organization through the power of AI? You know, I could say a couple things about that. One might be internal to the organization and another might be in the creation of products external to the organization. So internally, it's really important to be thinking of all of the people engaged in a particular AI project. You know, this may be um, difficult to communicate because these projects can get pretty sophisticated quickly. But maybe we can try to imagine the circumstance where we bring in a data scientist to clean data and then uh, create some models around around which we train some data, then make some predictions back on a particular website. And maybe that actually goes well for a period of time. Let's say that after six months to a year, that person moves to a different team within the in the company or has some other circumstance where they maybe they've just grown out of that particular job. They've done such a good job, but we want to put them in a different application. We bring in a new person to take a look at the website again. This person befitting their reason for being hired has a whole bunch of new ideas for creating value in the website. It says they want to redo it and begins to refresh the website. It definitely looks more modern. It definitely looks cleaner 
customers actually react better to it. And maybe to some extent, even the sales goes up, but maybe the recommendations go down. Maybe those actually decrease. So you don't quite know why. And maybe the customer satisfaction begins to decrease after the initial excitement about the refreshed look. Well, what can happen in this particular circumstance that I'm just inventing a scenario we can think about others mm-hmm. is that the new person came in and they redid the variable names. And so maybe they redid the variable names for so for the name of the customer. So instead of a, of a literally calling first name, last name, uh, separately, they just have name. Well, that mix, that, that mistake right there, if it wasn't tied into the model and how the model acquired data is the type of thing that, that can then make your model less effective. So another ordinary way of thinking about it is all of us have worked mm-hmm. in Excel and we know the idea of having a cell reference another cell. But if you're in a hurry or certainly if you're new to Excel and you don't really, you're not really comfortable with it or you don't, <laughs> or you just want to get the job done and you just are sick of the model, you often can find yourself and you see models like this where the answer is hard coded where it's no longer a variable. It was supposed to be a variable and it was supposed to be fed in from two other cells, but now it's hard-coded. Now, that is enough of a pain in a simple model or a reasonable model. But if that starts to actually get complex, and in our example, we're talking about an e-commerce site, that becomes almost impossible to spot hard-coded outputs. And so in the example we're just talking about, you had a model that ceased to give effective recommendations and actually decreased customer satisfaction. And it could have been because of a variable name change, which was because of a reasonable change of personnel that didn't communicate with one another. And you scale this up where you have multiple staff that know their own part of an organization, but find it difficult to have one person really seeing the the solution end to end. And you begin to see how these organizations can mess up their AI implementation in a way that really can waste resources and maybe even decrease value. You know, the solution to this is manifold, unfortunately. We talked about nomenclature earlier, and I think that can pertain here to be sure. Doing unit tests, iterative tests, small tests of your system can also be a way of addressing those particular issues. Having people understand the full system can also be certainly a way of addressing these issues because these are these are hard problems. You know, these are legitimately difficult problems to solve and difficult problems to avoid. I think you want to make sure your whole team is aware of the data, aware of its nature, aware of the properties of the team, and maybe critically, the purpose of the data. So. When people see, when your team sees the data, you know, where is that going to go? And what's the flow path of that data? That's actually a critical part of that. And then you just want to monitor that data, monitor inside of your machine learning integration, have some benchmarks, and then watch for the outliers. There are some emerging tools that can help with these sort of things, but it's the whole system, the totality of the system, the people conscious of the data flow path and the unit tests that I think can start to address some of these issues. It's a real problem. I think people both need to be careful and to need to be aggressive because the urgency is really there with the deployment of some of these automated tools. I think I could say something else, actually, about the selection of the tools. I find that a lot of technologists, at least in in the Western U.S., often, for understandable reasons, look to the tools that are used by some of the big technology firms, you know, Google, Facebook, Amazon. But 
the problems with that was, are, is that tools like Hadoop and, and others, they're often most appropriate for those with internet scale data. And so you can be at a smaller firm that doesn't have internet scale data and use tools that are most appropriate for internet scale data. So you're going to get less, far less in some cases, effective results because you're using the tools of the major leagues. And it doesn't mean your company's not as good. You just don't have internet scale data. On the deployment of the technology, I can say that I'm really encouraged by the extra emphasis behind human-computer interaction, the appreciation of design. When user interfaces first came in the early 80s and became popular with the invention of Apple's Macintosh, often user interfaces, graphically user interfaces, were disparaged as mere toys. And now, in 2019, we will have leading investment firms with in-house designers. That's just really encouraging. We had a the Human Human Computer Interaction Institute was founded by one of my doctoral advisors, and that was the model upon which Stanford's celebrated D School was was started by their own admission. That's just really terrific to see that design continues to have a, a increasing prominence in many of our products. Because remember, that's from my motivation of wanting these tools really to serve us and allow for our humanness to be even better expressed. One thing that I'm going to, I think is you're going to see uh, emerge is the next wave of, of human computer interaction. And that's not going to be manipulating pixels. It's actually going to be manipulating how you experience technology of how you interact with people. People often can say the disparaging way of saying that some geek in the cubicle is awkward as you can say he has a bad user. He or she has a bad user. <laughs> I mean something different. When you're interacting with people, we have personalities. And, and you and I talking on a phone gives a higher fidelity than typing. That's why you can use sarcasm on a phone. And you and I in a video can have even higher fidelity interaction because then you can see where people may flinch or whether they become disinterested. That has really useful effects out in the world because you can look at when certainly people are engaged or disengaged, but you more critically are just worrying about whether they're a threat. That becomes really helpful when you're looking at machines. So right now, our machines don't have personalities. Maybe people think that their cars have personalities and starting sometimes or not starting other times or <laughs> whatever the, whatever car reviewers might say about a driving experience or something. Like that. And some appliances that maybe I don't want a personality. I don't, I don't need my dishwasher to, to say good morning. But it becomes really useful because it can be a shorthand to know the state of something. And there's a company innovating in this right now called Anki, A-N-K-I. So they have this little fist-sized R2-D2. Well, that's what I'll call it. It's a robot about the size of your fist. And it begins to have a personality. How they got that personality is by hiring some animators from Pixar. And these creatives would actually storyboard an interaction with a person. And they would think through, how would I actually interact? You're saying hello, you're saying good morning, you came home after not being interacting with the robot for some number of hours. How would I react? Well, I would react calmly to a good morning, but I might interact enthusiastically if it was midday after you were away for six hours. And that's what this robot does. And you think, well, that's interesting applied to other devices in my world because mm -hmm. I can quickly get comfortable with other appliances just knowing their state. And they can make a noise, they can give some lights, just to know that their batteries have a char particular charge or they're available to me 
should I have a request? Or they just got some information in connection with another device that they may want to communicate to me if I'm in the proper state of mind. I think this is the next wave for human interaction, that you're going to have some degree of expressiveness, personality expressiveness in the devices around us that helps us give a shorthand for our human-computer interaction. You may not think you want your light switch, again, to have any personality, but I think that's going to be a way of improving our experience of many of these devices without thinking through just the other senses we have available, our hearing, our our touch, or our our visual component, for example. I really, really like that, actually. I hadn't thought about it in that way, but... Yeah, as you say, the human-computer interaction is poised for a revolution through artificial intelligence to emulate much better communication with humans, yeah, by tracking the data of all the interactions that we've had with them and, and obviously what's happening to us in terms of the length of time that we haven't been at home or maybe picking up the mood or the sentiment based on either facial recognition or the speaking tone or things like that. There is a lot of work that can be done there that will make our lives so much better. Actually, you you bring up a good point. Yeah, so I have some 60,000 photographs in my archive, right? And some of these have more meaning than others. You bring up a great point of being able to use some combination of the time of day, but maybe also the tone of voice, but maybe also whether my devices sense that my family's with me. That by itself can help search through my photo archives about what photos I might want to see at that particular time, if I'm searching for photos, or if I'm not. You know, right now, our best guide for music is just searching for activities, or literally, you know, I'll say, what mood are I in? Oh, I'm in a mellow mood, or oh, I'm an excitable mood. But how much better might it be if some of the sensors could use their detection of your state, along with other characteristics, such as time of day and your location, to help predict what sort of music you might like. I actually spend more time than I'd like to look for music that I want in a, in a particular time. Same. Yeah, this should be an easier experience. That's for, And it can be. It's what you're saying, and it's fantastic. I hadn't thought about it in that way before. It's great. When you're talking to people about the new world that can come from AI, what type of reactions do you get? Are people uh, mostly positive, uh, mostly negative, a mix? And what are the points of views that you're receiving or hearing from other people around the, the positives and the negatives? They're a really rich question around which we could uh, spend another hour uh, speaking. When I started, it's fortunate to, to have had a tour of duty in the United States federal government during the Obama administration. And when I started, I was asked what to accomplish during my time there uh-huh. with my background in AI and robotics. I said I wanted to change the Hollywood narrative around AI from either a, a utopia you often hear, or a dystopia into something a little more productive. I think it's a type of lazy thinking when just describing AI as one of those two outcomes. And in fact, it's actually a, mm-hmm. a paradigm that I don't like in most circumstances. Well, you either like this or you like that. Well, it's often, most often, it's just not true. There's just a lot of, of, of middle ground. I unfortunately think that despite the progress that I saw us make during the time working with and in the Obama White House, we still have a long way to go. I think this conversation changes uh, depending where I am in the world. It changes depending on one's level of exposure to these technologies. And it changes uh, relative to 
the news of the day. I mm. think that, for example, we were naive about our privacy in 2015. We were naive about the level of manipulation that could be possible through social media in 2016 and 2017. I think our, our views are evolving about national security, for example. So in the Obama administration, we had some consideration for China as a partner in some circumstances, but somehow a competitor in others. And certainly there are people in the United States Defense Department that think about these things in, a, uh, in an even more dramatic fashion. But one concern that surfaced has, I think, only become more pronounced over the past couple of years, uh, you know, not because of the change of administration, just because as time has, has progressed, which is that some of the technologies inside of these increasingly complex systems can be at one time created in the, one of the Western democracies that are allies of the United States and then find themselves acquired by, owned by, partnered with, but IP controlled by uh, the Chinese. And that in a peacetime setting is perfectly fine, but it presents a national security threat, potentially. Mm -hmm. It's a vulnerability. And so we were uh, beginning in the exploration of how to address that particular issue. So this is an example of depending on the audience with whom I'm speaking, this conversation changes. You know, when I was with, when I'm with politicians, they will often bring up their individual constituents' concerns for jobs. And this is a real concern. This is actually a big deal concern, I think, for everybody, because even for those that are less personally effective and even less personally concerned, I think it's really imperative that we begin to, to generate, if not just continue to keep presence of, the empathy for others whose jobs are at risk. And while I don't think that we're going to be replacing the truck drivers that are just the, the canonical example of job losses, it seems, in the news yes. anytime soon. And in fact, I think that truck drivers' jobs will actually improve in the short term for reasons I can get into before their jobs are eliminated. Kind of a funny wave that they're going to, I think, that industry, those workers are going to experience. I think what's really harsh about jobs, and so the concern you can legitimately have around AI, is the abruptness with which people will experience these changes. Just really the nature of digital technology that something doesn't work, something doesn't work, and then when it works, it can scale infinitely fast. This is how we experience all these social media technologies. It's how we experience our smartphones. I couldn't have given advice to my nephew 10 years ago or 10 or 12 years ago to say, hey, you might want to consider a job as an app developer. It was just inconceivable. (laughs) We knew that we would have something like a Star Trek communicator, sure, but no one said we are going to have apps that then it will be able to control, a, will, will create a billion-dollar marketplace that then will create these jobs for people <laughs> called app developers. No one saw that coming. And so some part of this future is literally inconceivable, literally unseeable, uh, unseeable, but yet we have to react to it. And the abruptness with which some of these reactions have to take place needs to be reflected in some social policy. I, this is my personal view, but I just think it's important for the embrace of this technology that we've outlined is critical, that we allow people to feel more comfortable with the inevitable outcomes for some unpredictable duration, unpredictable size, unpredictable timing 
for a segment of our population. That's a general way of addressing the issues we have in AI that, that I hear. I, I get taken aside at cocktail parties or, or what have you with smart people saying, hey, do I, uh, do I need to be concerned about AI? You know, hey, what should I tell my daughter to do? She's thinking of majoring uh, in college. You know, what should she study? So I get a range of considerations. For the politicians, the, the story that seems to get the best response is that the productivity changes around the invention of the cotton gin. We had this massive increase in productivity available for the processing of cotton. So what that did is that lowered the price, that increased demand. The United States has a tragic history about how that production demand was enabled, but the fact is the price decreased in the, and therefore the, the amount of labor that was demanded in order to fulfill the drop in price from the increase in productivity was actually created in a human way. It would have created employment. That's what I'm hoping we're going to see more of or at least the story told more of with automation. Just like the app developer, that job exists today and it didn't exist 10 years ago. There's an argument to be made, actually, that the job issue is rather flat. There's jobs that will leave. There's jobs that will come on board. You will not be replaced by a robot. By a robot is the easy way of saying this. You will be replaced by a human with a robot or a human with AI. That's a good way for people yeah. to grasp uh, how this technology will come to existence. So what an individual can do, what your listeners can do, is prepare for the agility needed. They can be curious. So if I tell you to be agile, it doesn't really do anything. If I suggest curiosity, that may allow for some action to take place to prepare for these abrupt transitions that we're all, we're all going to experience. Definitely. That is a very actionable piece of advice to be curious. It is definitely coming soon. And when it happens, it'll be extremely quick. Could you tell us a bit more about the transition that you see for truck drivers that you mentioned that it could get better before automation comes in stronger? How do you see that happening? Yeah, well, so the funny thing is I have a car that has automatic cruise control. You know, in many cars, this was a leading technology. This was a new technology, an innovative technology just a few years ago. But now some really inexpensive cars now have this cruise control. The benefit of this is what I find is I'm less tired when I have that technology. It's just, it makes it driving a little bit easier. When I've driven a, a Tesla on some longest trips, I have found that I'm, I'm, I'm even less tired still because the automation technology in those cars generally is better than in the car I, I drive more often. The best car out there actually for automation right now is the Audi A7 and A8. Those are wow. better than Tesla's. In those cars, people have told me that they can do these six-hour drives from the beach to a ski resort, and they're shocked about how less tired they are. So those sort of technologies just help all of us, but they can certainly help truck drivers. But here's the issue about truck driving. In At least in the United States, there's actually a shortage of truck drivers. So you hear in the press that they're all, wow. those jobs are all going away, but there's actually a shortage of truck drivers. Now, the reason that there's a shortage of truck drivers is because it's actually a really unpleasant job, and not for the reason that you and I might immediately think of, that you're just driving all day. It's because if you're a long-haul truck driver, mm -hmm. you're gone from your family. Mm -hmm. You're gone from your friends. You're just away from home. You drive a 1,000 kilometers, and then you might drive another 1,000 kilometers. <laughs> that takes a while then to get home. You're driving across vast stretches of a continent, typically, for long-haul truck drivers. And it's difficult to have long-term relationships. And as we know, now now from research, but we've known this quite a while for intuitively, that relationships are perhaps the most important, if not the most important, issue for happiness. 
So you'll see many truck, long haul truck drivers will want to take, elect to take less pay in order to do short haul routes to be home every night. Mm. So one group of technologists thought of this. And instead of trying to go whole hog on a fully automated truck right out of the gate, they had this brilliant idea that what they're going to do is they're going to create a caravan of cars or a, a group of trucks driving together. What's hard is getting these cars or trucks to drive all by themselves in every environment. We talked about this a little bit in relation to Elon Musk's prediction of autonomous driving. So in, what's easy, this is where you could have an automated taxi, is controlled environments. So a freeway, a highway, a controlled access road, those types of roads, those are easy. I don't have a lot of cars coming in. I don't have a lot of cars coming up. I certainly don't have cross traffic, which is really the definition. And I also have generally really well-paved, well-striped, well-communicated terms of the environment. So if I could get a truck to drive on those roads, that's much easier. You know what's even easier than that is one truck following another truck. So the brilliant idea that this company had is let's not just have one truck be automated. Let's have two trucks be automated. But what, what we'll do is we'll have those two trucks that are automated. We'll follow a truck that's not. So imagine three trucks. The front one actually has a driver. The front one's on duty. The front one's driving, mm -hmm. full on driving, just like we do today. The one in the cab behind and the third cab. Those drivers, you have drivers, you have humans in the truck, but they're sitting watching TV or probably more appropriately, they're sleeping. So where a driver could reasonably drive for eight hours between all the brakes and the gas and looking for a parking spot, if you had three drivers all driving for eight hours and you did some sort of Peloton, they could drive for 24 hours. And so you can get a thousand miles out in a day and a thousand miles back in a day. You're away yeah. from home for a day. It's not for limit of the gas tanks that these trucks don't drive longer. It's for a limit of awakeness of a driver. So your jobs are going to get better before they get worse. Wow. This is long haul truck driver. Yeah, that is so interesting. That is really interesting. We were talking about how digital technologies are infinitely scalable when the problem is solved. And I wanted to ask you about cases about AI in the medical field, because you're closer to that space. Uh, sometimes people, when they hear in the news that, for example, AI can now diagnose certain types of cancers better than radiologists, or with more accuracy than radiologists. And people hear that in the news, and sometimes you have the polarizing reaction. Some people are saying, ah, great, that means that it will be available to me as a consumer of healthcare in the next six months and in the next year. People think really short term. And then other people think, oh, it couldn't possibly be that easy, in inverted quotes. It's probably not going to happen. And obviously, the truth is somewhere in between that getting an AI in today's world, getting an AI to do those diagnoses, that is only part of the problem that needs to be solved in order to get the scale, the infinite scale that digital technologies can provide. Could you shed some light or do you have any views on the other hurdles that need to be overcome for the algorithms to be available to more people in the industries that are not digital natives? You know, there's several ways to go at this. So I look at the healthcare space as having really three issues to solve. So one is in digital health records, the merging of which can help your personal care individually transfer from physicians, and that can decrease mistakes, but also increase efficacy as your care is 
faster and more appropriately customized to you. Another issue is in just the logistics of running the medical industry. So the supply chains in hospitals are just notoriously inefficient. And this is difficult to address because hospitals are incentivized to increase care and inefficiency of a supply chain is not directly affecting care. It increases costs. It may decrease satisfaction of the workers in a hospital, frustration of the doctors and, and the staff, but it's difficult to find out how to address that problem. And the third is is really what you're addressing, which is in the, in the actual quality of care. And that, this could be in the diagnosis or in the treatment. I can attack this actually in two different ways. One is in the data, and then the other is in the system. And I'll take the last one first. I sit on the board of this firm called Wellways Medical. It's really a fantastic innovation to detection of breast cancer. And I've come to understand this technology in a way that I hadn't quite appreciated. I mean, I, as a man, it's not something I experience day to day, except in the experience from the women in my life. Or when my wife would come home from a, a mammogram and slap me on the head and say, why haven't you solved this problem? <laughs> They're very you know, painful and they're expensive and they're not actually all that ex- accurate. They, they can give false positives. They can demand biopsies where no biopsy was necessary. The system approach to these mammograms actually addresses some part of your issue. So once you do this very painful process of using these high pressure plates that, with the breast in between, you have to actually have that properly placed by a competent medical professional before you even consider the interpretation of the data that's collected from that procedure. And you might miss some parts of that just from the device or perhaps from the physiology of the woman to whom the device is applied. So that gets at this answer of the radiology. Maybe in some cases, we know this actually, robot can be or a computer can be automatically detecting some things better than a, a human, but it's in the application, the process that created the data where you're going to need a human for quite some time. You're going to need health professionals interacting with patients to say no, nothing of the emotional interaction of the process of getting these procedures and then interpreting them and communicating them to the patient. So there's some specialties that will certainly need to change. To just uh, go on this line of excitement I have for Wellways Medical, instead of this horrible process that I described that's expensive and catches tumors a little later than, than would be optimal, imagine a piece of material that one can place on their chest for 15 minutes, then take off, put, put on a table, take a picture with your iPhone, and being able to immediately, with an increased accuracy, being able to detect the presence of a tumor. And the reason for this is wow. because tumors will detect changes and they will conduct temperature. They will conduct heat more quickly. It's the discrepancy huh. of heat between one side of your chest and the other side of your chest from which a early stage tumor can be detected. And again, the earlier stage can be detected with this particular procedure than a mammogram. And early detection, as we all know, is the best way to be uh, treating breast cancer, catching it early. That's very. It's one of the most treatable forms of cancer if it's caught early. So this is, this is a really exciting development. I can talk about the system a little bit more, which is interesting. Yeah. This technology of using temperature to detect these tumors is not the only thing that was innovative in this cancer detection. It was actually 
the invention of a multi-million dollar, very expensive machine that can produce this device cost-effectively. It actually requires this process that is highly precise. They had these folks at MIT develop this technology, and that in combination with these other discoveries that then ultimately gained approval of the health authorities that allow for this application. So we think of it as a whole system that enables this new process for cancer detection, and, and I think women around the world are going to be very excited. This product gets released in the next couple of weeks, so we're actually speaking at a, right. at a really fortunate time to be talking about it. Besides it being more comfortable and detecting cancers earlier, which is a big friggin' deal, uh, it's actually it's also cheaper. So the companies that sponsor your health plan, wow. wherever it is, or the governments, depending on where you live in the world, will also be motivated by using something that is cheaper as an individual diagnostic and cheaper, of course, in the totality of the treatment of these cancers, because catching them uh, early is a lot cheaper than fixing them or trying to address them uh, once they've grown. So that's one way to address this issue of healthcare. The other way to address it is in their research. I had the good fortune of speaking to these researchers at Memorial Sloan Kettering Hospital in New York. It's a globally recognized cancer research center on the topic of AI in cancer research. In the talk, I, I talked about a related exercise I did with Stanford University, University of Pennsylvania, and, and University of Pittsburgh addressing infant mortality. So it's unfortunate that in these some communities in the United States, they actually have a, a rate of infant mortality that would be more common in the developing world than you might, one might expect in a developed world or a developed democracy. So the Mellon, R.K. Mellon Foundation was generous enough to donate some money to support some research behind the causes and then look for solutions to decrease infant mortality. And this story will just speak to the degree of, of isolation or siloing of, of some of these disciplines, I think, that just don't, don't serve us. I was asking, if you want to bring in, when I'm participating, if you want to bring in data to try to solve the problem, I asked the, the IT professionals or the doctors, mm -hmm. how much data are you bringing in and how are you doing that? And the physicians reply, Oh, that's not a problem. That's not a big deal at all. We just, uh, we ask huh. these guys to integrate our data. And then the, <laughs> and the IT professionals say, Oh, well, that's not a big deal. It wasn't a big deal. They asked me to combine these two databases and, and I did. What no one was in a position to address, and this gets to the point of AI as a system, I guess yeah. the point about how corporations deploy this, and this, this happens in corporations as much as it happened in this dynamic within this particular research enterprise. No one appreciated that this took up a, a year and a half and $3 million of funding. Yes. They said it's not a problem, but oh, hey, it took you a million and a half and a year and a half and $3 million. And they, what they could have done, and had they properly explored the right technology, they could have brought in 30 databases and integrated them in a verifiable way and done that in six months. But no one wow. had the overall systems view to be able to appreciate the interactions and how come up with that solution. No one was motivated. So true. And it's such a painful part of the process, something that is always holding back the progress in the AI space. Yeah, being able to access, uh, integrate data. And I know that we're definitely running over time. So I will wrap this up quickly. What are your views on the approaches that data can be better integrated in ways that provide trust to the people that will use it? I can talk about the data integration. This is a great way to end our conversation because it really points to the future. I talked about uh, where I'm looking around AI. I'm talking about the earned industry expertise that needs to be applied to various learning algorithms. But what comes before learning algorithms is data. There's one area the theory behind information technology diverges from the practice, and it's in the integration of data. It represents 40% of the budgets of large 
firms IT, and yet it's just under addressed for the reasons that, that are not dissimilar from the healthcare industry that we talked about. Mm-hmm. The approach is a transformation that we're going to see all over our world in information technology. And this is what I could encourage your listeners, especially those just starting out in their career, to focus. It's my view that category theory, because branch or mathematics, is going to really dominate math in a way that the closest analogy might be found with Mandarin as many people's second language or third language. It's going to just come to dominate everything else. Calculus and relational theory, upon which relational databases have been built, isn't necessarily going away, but it's going to decrease in emphasis. A little bit like a geometry or trigonometry have more to do with our physical world than they have to do with the digital world in which we live today. And category theory is what's appropriate for a digital world. It, 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 it's expressed today in some technologies like Hadoop, but you're going to see it much more broad. There's a place where that has my attention that was a, a spin out of MIT that I've now co-developed into more of a technology platform that addresses this data integration issue using a categorical approach. But you're going to see thousands of examples using a categorical approach, expressions in a range of industries, and it's such that really everything is going to get transformed. It's not unlike the year 2000 bug that saw everybody upgrade their information technology infrastructure, but it's all going to be now from a categorical approach. That is great, and that is definitely what we need in the world. Eric, thank you so much. That is an outstanding note to end on. Thank you so much for your time, for sharing all your knowledge, your wisdom, your first perspective. It has been extremely valuable. I really can't thank you enough. Thanks for having me. This has been a good time. That brings this episode to conclusion. Thank you so much for listening. Please find us on datafuturology.com or on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or Instagram as Data Futurology. Also go to datafuturology.com forward slash podcast to find the show notes for this and any other episodes. If you like this episode, it would mean a lot to us if you could leave us a review wherever you listen to our podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that it was helpful and valuable for you. Thanks again and see you next time.